0: From Wondery, this is Business Wars. I'm David Brown. Joining us now is Stephen Johnson. He's the best-selling author of 10 books on science, technology, and the history of innovation, including The Ghost Map, Where Good Ideas Come From, and Wonderland. And you may also remember him as the host and co-creator of the Emmy Award-winning PBS series, How We Got to Now. He's been named by Prospect Magazine as one of the top 10 brains of the digital future. Hey, Stephen, welcome. Uh, Great to talk with you. Thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to to speak with us.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, it's great. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, Business Force, so this is is fun.
0: Well, this is really exciting. Tell us a little bit about American Innovations
1: and what the big idea is. Well, it's a, a look back at innovations that really, you know, transformed the world in in various ways, some of them kind of scientific breakthroughs, some of them more technological breakthroughs. Um, And we have, it's similar to Business Wars in the sense that, you know, you're talking about these extraordinary stories with really interesting people. um, And there is a sense of kind of drama uh, behind these ideas. But we're also talking about the environments that made these breakthroughs possible. You know, you're going to learn about science and the history of technology, um, but also some really extraordinary lives. And we. Well, we what, what is yeah. your
0: passion? Forgive me for interrupting,
1: but no, I, no, well, no. what is your
0: passion here? Is, is it is it more the history I, stuff? Everything. Is it, is it, is you it? know,
1: the, all I've written all these crazy books on all these different topics, from cholera epidemics to video game culture to neuroscience, but. The thing that unites all of my interests that really kind of come to the fore with this podcast is is kind of new ideas coming into the world, right? When when there's a new idea that really changes things, it changes the way we interpret things, it changes the way that we, you know, create or communicate with each other or how we understand uh, where we came from. Mm-hmm. Like what? How do those ideas happen? Right. Who are the kind what kinds of people bring them into the world? What kinds of environments make those ideas possible? And and that's what we're really kind of focused on in American innovations. And, and so we, we have these kind of six episode um, kind of story arcs. Uh, the first one is on the history of DNA, our understanding of genetics huh. and heredity. Yeah. Um, and we have other ones about kind of history of space travel and flight and uh, artificial intelligence and nuclear power. And, and so, on. so it's, it's going to be a great, great adventure. This sounds like so much fun.
0: Uh, I have to ask you, though, when we're talking about those moments those, where it seems like there's like a fulcrum, right? I mean, when, when things seem to be turning. So what is it exactly? Is it, is it a
1: person or is it just sort of what's going on, the gestalt of, of, of the moment? Yeah, I mean, the cop-out answer is really that it's, that it's both, but I think that's, that, that is true in that you have, you know, there, there are just certain ideas or technologies become imaginable at a certain moment in time because of the kind of march of progress or scientific understanding, right? So mm-hmm. N- mm-hmm. no one was inventing a light bulb um, in eighteen hundred. Um, but by 1860, 1870, there were lots of people trying to invent a light bulb at that point. So it had become <laughs> thinkable because of understanding uh, of electricity and uh, gases and various different things that were necessary to be able to invent a light bulb. But there are also in the, that mix, there are also very smart people. I, I would say that the lone kind of rogue genius mm-hmm. who stands outside of you know conventional wisdom and comes up with something entirely on his own – I think that is overrated. That doesn't happen as much as we Interesting. think. But it's but it's often kind of small networks of people, right? It's it's not that anyone could have figured it out, but it's it's, you know, a cluster of people um, you know, it might be if Edison and the light bulb is a great example, you know, Edison was working in parallel with about 10 other people in in the United States and in Europe who were all trying to work towards this idea of a light bulb. And he right. borrowed from their ideas. They contributed a lot to what he did. He kind of perfected some of their ideas. And they really all did do the inventing kind of as a group. Um, but we always want to condense the story down into just one person. Um, and I, that's one of the things we're trying to do with American Innovations is to show you that it's it's the actual story is much kind of messier and more chaotic, and there are all these <laughs> yeah, fights and battles, yeah. and you know all the stuff that's in business wars as well. Um, so I think that's that's one of the things that I think will be interesting for folks listening. Uh, so I have to ask you
0: about this because I think that this is getting more and more attention as we realize how accelerated um, history has become. Just I mean, if if you just think about the past three hundred years alone how many innovations have come over the horizon that, that, that people just could not even conceive of a few hundred years ago. And I'm wondering now that we're looking at artificial intelligence, for example, what does the future hold when it comes to innovation? Are we talking about uh, uh, perhaps uh, uh, artificial intelligence taking us through a, a, a new Era of innovation, perhaps accelerating innovation in a way that we we can't possibly, we haven't possibly imagined yet? I mean, wh- how do you see things developing over the next 20, 30, 40 years? I know exactly how
1: they're going to develop, David. <laughs> 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 and I can't tell you, nor can I tell your listeners. Because, because it's top secret. You'd have to kill secret. me for that. Yeah, exactly. No, but, but seriously, the, the artificial intelligence can be very interesting. Uh, clearly, what will happen on some level, is that we will have machine. we already do on some level, but we will have machines as our kind of co-pilot or co-innovators, right? And yeah, it'll be yeah. collaborative, right? There'll be a- certain kinds of intellectual breakthroughs will be easier for the machines, um, and certain kinds will continue to be easier for us. Um, and w- we'll s- develop this kind of duet, between machine intelligence and human intelligence. Um, but, the, you know, and we're going to cover some of this in the artificial intelligence series. There, there's this incredible uh, thing that just happened with, with Google's um, chess AI algorithm where they, I- instead of training the chess AI with um, basically lessons from human chess masters, they taught the AI just the basic rules of chess and had it play another AI And they just simulated, like, you know, 10,000 games um, in an afternoon. (laughs) And the two AIs, by playing each other and experimenting with different things, developed, you know, grandmaster-level skills, you know, in just a matter of hours, basically. But they also developed techniques. So when they looked at how these... Uh, AIs were actually playing, they didn't even understand the strategies they were taking. They didn't make sense to a kind of human strategy. So the machine had evolved a completely new way of being good at chess that that humans hadn't stumbled across before. So that's the kind of stuff we're going to see more and more of. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It's interesting. When you were talking about that, it
0: reminded me of a story that I saw on the news wires not that long ago about how computers uh, at Facebook artificial intelligence uh, 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 experiments, I suppose. Uh, Some of these computers had begun to talk to each other and had developed their own language, which was designed to supersede or in some way uh, uh, avoid uh, uh, detection from humans. And Facebook had to pull the plug on those computers. I found that to be fascinating, of course. Uh, And and definitely not at all scary.
2: <laughs> no, of course not. Nothing. Uh, not nothing not at all scared about that.
0: But but isn't it funny that we've been talking about this sort of dystopian uh vision of Artificial intelligence since at least 1969. I guess that yeah. was when 2001, A Space Odyssey came out, right? I mean, this has yeah, the, been the part is, of the part of conversation. Yeah, the book is earlier than that. Yeah, yeah no, exactly, exactly. It's,
1: it's a, I, the, you know, I just, the book that I just wrote, which is on the history of innovation and play and people doing things for fun and, and how, how that shaped innovation. And one of the last lines in the book is talking about artificial intelligence. And we'll be like, we'll know when the computers are really smart when they actually start to try and have fun. And, and and make jokes, right? Like that's yeah, right, that's right, a right. really a very – you know, that's a sign of high-level organisms when they're like, hey, I just want to slag off. And I invented a game. This is really fun. Let's play this game. You know, it's not uh-huh. a task. Uh, but that will be a sign that they've entered a whole new phase. So that's what we should look out for. Not, not you know, uh, Hal not opening the pod bay doors as in 2001. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I'm sorry I can't do that, Dave. <laughs> hey, hey, Stephen, uh, hey, Mike, did you? Did I just hear you say you were talking about a new book? Is
1: that right? Well, I've got uh, Wonderland. This book on the history of play just came out um, uh, in paperback a couple months ago. And then I have a new book coming out in September, which we're going to talk a little bit about on the show that talks about AI a little bit called Farsighted, about uh-huh. long-term thinking, long-term decision making, uh, and uh, so that's out September four. That's really exciting. That's really exciting. Uh, have you done this podcast thing before? Is this a, is this a, a new foray for you or what? I did a, pod, a kind of a ten part podcast for Wonderland when that book came out, and that's still there in the in the iTunes store as well. That was a lot of fun. Um, but this is great, and and what's different about this is we're we're partnering with some great writers as well. So the uh, terrific science writer Sam Keen is is writing this DNA episode uh, episode one through six, um, and so I've been kind of helping to shape the shows and the vision of it and things like that but we also have some great writers because there's just so many episodes there's no way I would be able to write it all myself. (laughs) (laughs) Well this is
0: uh, this is really neat because Wondery sort of specializes in the I guess the immersive yeah. Podcast experience, you know what I'm saying. So, do you find yourself doing a lot of voices and that sort of thing, or is this a new thing for you?
1: I I I haven't really. I did a little bit of kind of performing when I was doing the PBS series, but mostly uh-huh. you know, it was in kind of host mode. I'm trying not to really embarrass myself by going too <laughs> crazy with the voices. I had to. There's one in the in the first episode. There's a there's a brief section where I have to read from uh, some remarks that Bill Clinton did when he was. Uh, introducing the Human Genome Project, and uh, yeah. and there's there's a little kind of Clinton impression that <laughs> that I that I briefly <laughs> dropped into there. It's very subtle, but it's if you listen carefully, you could hear it.
0: <laughs> I feel your pain, believe me. Um, so so uh, in in terms of innovation, I think a lot of us think, and and I guess I'm revealing my own bias, and in part this is because of business wars. I tend to think of of innovation as always being a kind of contest. I guess. And, you know, I was listening back to where you were talking about back in the 1860s. There was this idea that, yeah, we we can have a light bulb. There's, the race is on, in a sense. Yeah. Do Do you think that that is a requirement? In other words, with every new innovation, there has to be this kind of contest, this battle for uh, for that next breakthrough. Or, or, I mean, maybe that's, like I say, just reflecting my own bias about this stuff.
1: No, I think you see that a lot. and And for sure, there is a lot of... Um, kind of competitive energies that run through um, American innovations as well. Certainly the DNA uh, episodes have many stories of people who are driven, you know, they've got their arch nemesis who they really want to, you know, kind yeah, of yeah. You know, publish the paper first or make this breakthrough first. But, you know, there's, particularly in the sciences, there there it, there is also a, you know, a, a very important collaborative um, tradition there as well. And in part because People you know, work in a kind of peer-reviewed, open, kind of open-source mode in science as opposed to sometimes in the business world where you, know, you have more proprietary technologies and strategies and so on. And so there's both competing with, but there's also building on. And, um, and I think I would argue that the, the, those forces are kind of equally important uh, mm-hmm. over the course mm-hmm. of, of the history of innovation, that collaboration and competition, you know, if you have them in equal measure, that's probably the best recipe.
0: Do you mind if I put you on the spot here, uh, Stephen? Do you have? Uh, do you consider yourself an innovator? I mean, you're an entrepreneur <laughs> yourself.
1: Uh, I have. I have started uh, a couple of web companies back in the. Back in the day, none of them were successful enough to be featured on Business Wars, uh, sadly. Um, although I could tell you some stories, as you can imagine. But, um, <laughs> but now, now I, I, you know, it's kind of a young man's game, i got to say. Like, I'm about to turn 50. And I, I to do startups, you know, you just have to live it 24-7. And I've got kids. And, you know, it's much easier just sitting around. You know, dealing with words, <laughs> but you know than... you
0: could always partner with an AI machine, right? I mean, you know, right. who knows? Yes, right? exactly. Yes. Everything's gonna, gonna be future. different. That's in the future. That I know exactly uh, how it's gonna <laughs> turn out. <laughs> well, this is a, a really exciting new series, American Innovations. It premieres Thursday, May tenth, and we are so excited uh, to hear the the new series. Uh, Stephen Johnson, best-selling author of ten books on science, technology, and the history of innovation. Uh, his very latest book is called Farsighted. Now, has that been released yet? That's coming it, out uh, September September fourth. Coming out on September fourth, uh, but you don't have to wait that long to uh, to you check out. You can pre-order the new it. American... You can
1: pre-order it for sure. <laughs> uh, what, what's the website, man? Uh, Stephenberlinjohnson.com. dot Berlin, like the city in Germany. Beautiful. American Innovations.
0: Look for it. Check it out at uh, your favorite place to listen to podcasts. Uh, Stephen, it's been a delight to get to say hello. Thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's really a pleasure.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot. I'm psyched to be part of the Wondery family and uh, keep up the great work with Business Force. Let's listen in on a bit of the first episode.
0: Did you know over 80% of people think life insurance costs double what it actually costs? Not only that, almost 100% of people think buying life insurance is a pain in the neck. Truth is, a healthy 35-year-old can get a half a million dollars in coverage for less than 30 bucks a month. And I bet you spend more than that each month on coffee. And the great news is, getting life insurance doesn't have to be complicated because now there's policy genius. Policy genius is the easy way to compare life insurance online. In just five minutes, you can compare quotes from the top insurers to find the best policy for you. Policy Genius has helped over 4 million people shop for insurance and placed over $20 billion in coverage. And they don't just make life insurance easy. They also compare disability insurance, renter's insurance, and health insurance. If you care about it, well, they can cover it. So if you've been thinking about getting life insurance, go to PolicyGenius.com. It's the easy way to compare the top insurers and find the best policy for you. You'll be saving time, money, and hassle, and it's free. Policy genius. Because comparing life insurance doesn't need to be a pain in the neck.
1: A milestone for humanity. That's the title on the TV monitors at the White House press conference. It's the summer of 2000, and the room is full of people. Journalists, ambassadors, scientists. This isn't a typical presidential press conference. This is a celebration. Finally, President Bill Clinton arrives and steps up to the microphone. Good morning. He starts off thanking everyone for coming. There are a lot of high-profile guests present. Prime Minister Tony Blair is not here, but he is joining by video conference from the other side of the Atlantic. Then, Clinton begins to speak about the reason they are all gathered here, the reason for that dramatic title on the TV monitors.
2: We are here to celebrate the completion of the first survey of the entire human genome. Without a doubt, this is the most important, most wondrous map ever produced by humankind.
1: The Human Genome a complete record of the DNA inside us.
2: Clinton, though, goes further. He calls it the The language in which God God created created life. life. We are gaining ever more awe for the complexity, the beauty, the wonder of God's most divine and sacred gift. With this profound new knowledge, humankind is on the verge of gaining immense new power to heal. Genome science will have a real impact on all our lives, and even more on the
1: lives of our children scientists and diplomats gathered from all over the world that day hoped that by translating that book, we'd finally be able to read the stories written in its pages. Decoding our genome and learning how our DNA works will help answer some of the most enduring questions in human history. Clinton does point out the dangers of this new technology, the ethical challenges humanity now faces. He suggests that challenge will require as much cooperation and hard work as the mapping of the genome itself. Still, he ends on an optimistic note.
2: I suppose in closing, when we get this all worked out, we're all living to be 150. Young people will still fall in love. Old people will still fight about things that should have been resolved 50 years ago. (laughs) We will all on occasion do stupid things, and we will all see the unbelievable capacity of humanity to be noble.
1: From Wondery, this is American Innovations. I'm Steven Johnson. In this series, we're going to look at some of the most important innovations of the last hundred years. From the personal computer to nuclear power, these innovations have totally transformed our world, sometimes for good and sometimes for bad. And we're going to hear about the people behind those innovations. I've always been fascinated by these innovators, scientists, engineers, mathematicians, and sometimes just ordinary people. And a question I always find myself asking is, what was it about that time or place that made the idea possible? That was a theme in my book, Where Good Ideas Come From. And one thing I've learned from some of these great innovators is that even when they seem to be lone geniuses, no one comes up with an idea all by themselves. And they usually don't do it all in one Eureka-type moment. Just take Isaac Newton, English scientist and mathematician, who among other things is credited with the discovery of gravity. You might know the story about how the idea hit him literally while sitting under a tree. Now, that might just be a myth, but what is true is that Newton himself knew that none of his discoveries would have been possible without the work of others. He once said, If I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. Throughout history, That's what innovators have done, stood on their shoulders to see just a little further or a little differently. That's certainly true in this six-part series, The Dynamo of DNA. This series is all about the stuff buried deep inside our cells that make us who we are. Figuring out that genetic code has changed the world and helped us explain age-old mysteries. In fact, DNA would prove to be such an important molecule that it would quickly jump the boundaries of biology and revolutionize other areas of society too, creating whole new fields of research and business. From healthcare to crime, DNA has completely transformed our world. In this episode, we're going to go back about 150 years, long before Bill Clinton announced the Human Genome Project in the White House, to meet two scientists who, in their own way, laid the groundwork for the discovery of DNA. It's a story that stars cloned sheep, a room of fruit flies, and salmon sperm. But before we get to the salmon sperm, it's the winter of 1860, and in a little greenhouse on the grounds of a monastery in Brno, a monk is bent over looking for green shoots in a row of pea plants. The St. Thomas Monastery is in what's now the Czech Republic, It was then part of the Austrian Empire. The monks here are known for being inquisitive types, always doing some experiment or another. And this young monk is no exception. His name is Gregor Mendel, and he can often be found here in the greenhouse or in one of the outdoor courtyards. In one of the pots, he spots a tiny green shoot just beginning to push up through the soil, the first sign of life from the peas he planted only a couple of weeks earlier. It's still cold outside, but here in the warmth of the greenhouse, things grow a lot quicker. Mendel pushes his round spectacles up his nose, shuts the greenhouse, and heads over for prayers. Like many of the other monks, Mendel had joined the order precisely because it was the only way he could continue his studies. Gregor wasn't actually his original name. It's a name he was given when he became a monk. When he was a young child, a local priest had recognized something in young Johann Mendel. The priest went to Mendel's parents. Young Johann should go to school. But for Mendel's family, that was easier said than done. We can't afford to send him to school. But what about your daughter? You think my daughter should study? (laughs) No. That wasn't likely in those days. But have you saved a dowry for her? In the end, Mendel's family gave up most of their daughter's dowry, the money intended for her marriage, just so Johann could go to high school. Soon after joining the monastery, Mendel became seriously depressed. Maybe it was the work of tending to the sick and the surrounding communities, or maybe he was just having difficulty adjusting to life as a monk. Either way, his mood only lifted when he was sent away to the University of Vienna. He loved university, especially his statistics classes. While in Vienna, he spent his free time charting sunspots with a telescope and tracking tornadoes. In one of his classes, he learned to use a microscope and used it to look at pieces of plants laid out on glass slides, examining the green cells packed together like rows of boxes, each with a single black spot in the middle, the cell's nucleus. But he always seemed happiest outdoors, tending his bees and gardening. He returned to the monastery with renewed energy, determined to do his own research. At first, he has the idea that he will study the science of plant breeding, maybe with the goal of creating new hybrids for farmers. After all, his family are farmers themselves. And farmers have been coming up with new kinds of plants and animals for hundreds of years, always trying to get something that's bigger or stronger or tastier than old varieties. Mendel decides to try and figure out how characteristics from one generation are passed to the next. For instance, why do offspring resemble their parents? What causes that? And why are some traits more common than others? Mendel wasn't the first to ask these kinds of questions. In fact, they had preoccupied philosophers and scientists for thousands of years. 2,000 years earlier, the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle had come up with his own theory. He decided that sperm must provide what he called the form of a new animal, the information about what shape the animal would take or how many arms or legs it might have. And the egg provided the matter, kind of like the clay that's used to shape the creature. Both males and females had a role, but the female role was to supply the raw material while the male's contribution sculpted the offspring. Nowadays, we know that's wrong. Males and females contribute equally to their offspring's traits. But Aristotle's theory is important because he was one of the first to suggest that there might be a biological explanation for what everyone knew, leaving things that are related look alike. But he was still in a minority of people who thought like this. Mystical forces and superstitions were very much the order of the day, and it would remain that way for hundreds of years. One of the more unscientific theories was known as maternal impressions. This was the belief that children were shaped by their mother's experiences while pregnant. If something frightened a pregnant woman or made any kind of strong impression on her, then it would imprint itself on the child. This inspired a whole bunch of different folk stories. A woman who ate too many strawberries while pregnant gave birth to a child who was completely covered with splotchy red birthmarks. A woman who was apparently startled by sea monsters gave birth to a son whose skin resembled scales and who smelled like fish. The church actually played a role in spreading some of these stories. Bishops would tell the story of the sinful wife of an actor who seduced her husband backstage at a theater performance. The story goes that he was playing the part of Satan and was dressed in full costume at the time. The result, a child born with hooves and horns. In Gregor Mendel's day, another popular belief about heredity was called blending theory. Basically, this was the idea that a child's characteristics, hair color, height, skin color, were literally a blend of its parents' characteristics. It made a lot of sense at the time. You can imagine each parent's set of characteristics like a paint color being mixed together on a palette. But there were some problems with this theory. Some things just couldn't be explained by blending. A characteristic that seemed to have completely disappeared in one generation would pop up a few generations later. Children with red hair were sometimes born to parents with black or brown hair. Tall parents sometimes had short children, and so on. Mendel set out to study how these characteristics were passed down through generations. He couldn't know it when he started, but his work would eventually lead to a whole new branch of science, genetics. Mendel goes to his superior at the monastery. Abbot Cyril Knapp is fond of Mendel, but more than that, he's a true believer in the value of science. So when Mendel stops by his study one day with a research proposal, he listens. I want to better understand how traits are passed down from parent to child. Interesting. How do you intend to do that? By studying mice. I'd like to breed the mice with one another until I have enough... see patterns in them. I see. And how many mice would you need? I'd hope for hundreds, maybe even thousands. Maybe the monks decide they don't want to risk thousands of mice getting loose in the monastery, or maybe the idea of a monk closely watching the breeding habits of rodents just doesn't seem right. Either way, it's a no-go on the mice experiment. So Mendel, the son of a farmer, shifts his focus to plants, in particular Pea plants. Now, this may be the part you remember from your high school biology class, but Gregor Mendel studied peas for a few different reasons. First, bees can't pollinate pea plants very easily, so he had more control over which plants mate with which. Second, peas grow quickly, especially in the monastery's greenhouses, which meant he could observe several generations of peas in the span of a single year. And third, pea plants have several distinct Easy to observe traits. These traits are easy to categorize. They're usually one thing or another. The stalks are either tall or short, never medium. Flowers are either white or purple. Peas are either wrinkled or smooth, yellow or green. There is no in between. It just made everything a lot simpler, a lot tidier. Mendel decides to study seven traits in peas, and he begins cross pollinating plants with opposite traits just to see what happens. He fills notebook after notebook with observations about his findings. The monk in the greenhouse has become obsessed with figuring out the answer to how traits are inherited. Little does he know that just 350 miles away, another scientist is holding the answer in his hands. It's January 1868. It's early morning, and in a hospital in Tübingen in Germany... A bearded man, wearing a thick coat, makes his way quickly along one of the corridors. He's come to the hospital laundry room. Inside, it's damp and warm. He looks around impatiently. Where is it? Where is it? Just then, the door opens and in walks a nurse carrying a basket. Misha, you, you startled me. I came to pick up the bandages myself this morning, but the basket wasn't here. Let, let me see those. To the nurse's obvious shock, he pulls the basket out of her hands and begins picking through the soiled bandages. It's a veteran's hospital, so many of the soldiers have old wounds that leak pus and blood, and they need clean cloth bandages daily. Sometimes they can be washed and reused, but other times they're too filthy and are thrown onto a trash heap out back. The nurse doesn't understand what he's looking for. What was wrong with the last set? What did you say? What was the problem with the last bandages we sent? Not fresh enough. The man has collected a bundle of bandages and is about to leave. Is it true you're studying pus? No, not strictly true. It's white blood cells I'm interested in. What are you going to do with the blood cells? He's halfway out the door now, but he turns. I'm going to figure out what's inside them. And like that, he's gone. The scientist's name is Friedrich Miescher, and those bandages are going to help him discover the chemical building block of life. If Gregor Mendel had entered the clergy in part to continue doing scientific research, then Friedrich Miescher was the mirror image. Miescher had wanted to become a priest, but his father pushed him to study medicine instead. In 1868, at age 24, Miescher starts working in Tübingen, in southwest Germany in a new natural science institute located inside of an old castle. Miescher's lab is in the basement in what had been the castle kitchen. The lab is roomy with vaulted ceilings, but with tiny windows that don't let in much light. Miescher once said the gloom reminded him of a medieval alchemist's lair. In this lair, he works long hours at a large wooden bench surrounded by glassware. He's disheveled and his equipment is usually dirty, but he works hard. In fact, he works a little too hard for his own good sometimes. A colleague once described him as driven by a demon and another commented that the impression he gave was of a person completely taken up by his inner mental activity without contact with the outer world. A few years later, Miescher would almost miss his own wedding because he started a new experiment that morning and got distracted. Those pus-covered bandages from the hospital are for one of Miescher's first projects. He's interested in white blood cells, and he needs the bandages because pus contains white blood cells. He's especially interested in a structure inside the cells called the nucleus, that dot that Mendel had seen through his microscope. The key are the blood cells on those dirty bandages. Each morning, Miescher washes the bandages in a sodium solution to get the white blood cells off them. Then he goes about isolating the nucleus from the rest of the cell, like it's a peach and the nucleus is the stone at the center. First, he uses warm alcohol to dissolve the fats and lipids, including the cell's outer layer. Then he uses extract from a pig's stomach to digest most other parts of the cell. In the end, he's left with a glob of white mucus. In fact, lots of small nuclei stuck together. Now he has his nucleuses, but he still doesn't know what they're made of, so he sets about putting the glob through a series of tests. First, he drops it in chemicals that would break it down and dissolve it if it were a protein. But the glob of white mucus is unfazed. Then he tries boiling it in salt water. Nothing happens. Then he tries boiling it in vinegar, a stronger solution. Still nothing. Then he really goes for it and drops the glob into a solution of boiling hydrochloric acid. Nope, the white glob remains stubbornly intact. In a last ditch effort, Mishra sets it on fire. This actually works because he can analyze the gas and ash to see what was in the goo. For the most part, the results don't surprise him. Oxygen, nitrogen, carbon, all common elements and proteins, which is what he assumes the goo is. But then one element stops him in his tracks. Phosphorus. No known protein contains phosphorus. It just doesn't make sense. Miescher starts to get excited. He gets more dirty bandages, does more experiments, and pretty soon, he starts to believe he's discovered a whole new type of substance inside cells. Because it was the substance he'd extracted from inside the nucleus, he names it nucleon. Miescher doesn't realize it, but he's just discovered the basic building block of life. What he called nucleon is what scientists today call deoxyribonucleic acid, DNA. That was just a preview. To listen to the rest of this episode and more, search for American Innovations on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You'll also find a link in the episode notes that will take you right there. I'm Stephen Johnson, and this is American Innovations, the
2: leaps of mankind as they happen.